Well, good morning. It is so good to see all of you. And um, oh, so some of you went with us um, to Cave Springs yesterday to hear Micah Powell preach at a conference uh, there where Michael Battenfield is pastor and to hear um, why the church still matters. And I was speaking with Micah ahead of time, and I've decided he plagiarized our entire conversation because everything that I've done in preparation for this sermon almost hinges off of why the church still matters. And it's the assertion that the church is more than just a gathering of people who come and worship the same God individually, but the church is a gathering of visible people who have brought themselves together because it is God's will and God's design that this would be the instrument that he uses that we would be able to live righteously. Now, I've asked some of you this morning as you've prayed, Brother John, I appreciated your prayer earlier, and oftentimes as we come to worship, someone will pray, God, bless Brother Derek. And I cannot tell you with any more authenticity this morning how much I appreciate that. Because as I've prepared for this message... I have been more stressed than I have ever been to deliver God's Word. The church still matters when we live like the church is supposed to live. When we neglect that, there is no church. If you've been with us any length of time, you know that we will be returning this morning to Ephesians chapter 6. I draw your attention, though, to that the book of Ephesians, the letter to the church in Ephesus written by Paul, was not written out of context. We do not find ourselves studying the whole armor of God out of syncopation with everything else he has written thus far. Now, I've broken our series into different Elements in different parts. We looked at uh, Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 2, uh, particularly the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2, looking at what Paul describes as the old self. That is, who are we, when we before we are saved, before we are adopted into God's family? He prays for spiritual blessings and he points out that God has saved us by His grace. But before that... Before that, he describes us with words that hurt. You were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. This description that Paul begins his letter to the church in Ephesus with is not a description just to the unregenerate world or those who are not a part of the church, but he's writing to the church to remind them, you, congregants, Christians who are gathered here today, you were once children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's why we celebrate when we get to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, when we get to relish the fact that it is by grace that God has decided to save us from that. And Paul gives us the instruments of this through adoption. We are grafted into the body by the blood of Christ. We are 
brought to be one. And this mystery is even bigger than just our individual salvation. But as we get into chapter three, we find that our identity, our new identity as Christians, not just born again individual believers, but our new identity is with the church. God's plan described in Ephesians chapter three, verse 10, as the manifold wisdom of God revealed. This picture is amazing. Angels. As we look at the context of of this spiritual phenomenon in in Ephesians chapter 6, angels in glory worshiping God were not in the know as to what God's ultimate plan was for salvation. And he brings us to that point in the church. What is the church supposed to look like? In chapter 4, we get this description that our new identity is hinged upon this identification with the church, that we should be united as a church, that there should be unity among us, that we should live to serve one another. In fact, that's the application of our individual worship in chapter 5 as we look at the fact that we should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, modeling a relationship in our homes, between our children, at work. Loved ones, as we begin this morning, I want to point out that these are not unconnected thoughts. They're all related. As Paul exhorts the readers in Ephesus to finally be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might, to put on the whole armor of God, this description that we love to hang on to, it cannot be ripped out of context such that we do not see it as an imperative to the church. In fact, when we understand what is happening here, Christians are told to live in the world to be a light to the world because this is God's great plan. That's why our mission statement hinges on the great commandment given by Jesus and also on the great commission to love God, to love people, and to witness for Him in the world, to make disciples and to raise them up. Loved ones, these things are not unconnected. The picture of picking up armor, putting on these things that God has given us, must be seen by the individual Christian in context of the church. Because when we come to the church, Micah used this analogy yesterday. And if you were there with us in Cave Springs, you're already familiar with it. And I won't um, try to exegete what Micah did, but I thought it was a beautiful picture that when we go out into the world, Christians, when we go out and we get the flaming darts of Satan sent against us, we run to the church, our family, our outpost for the kingdom of God in a spiritual war that we are working together to care for one another. When Christians come to the church, it should be such that we carry those burdens with us openly and transparently, that we fall into the loving arms of Christians who possess the love of God, who are able to care for us and to prepare us for Monday when we go and do the same thing again until the Lord Jesus calls us home. In so many instances, you've heard me speak about spiritual disciplines, that individual believers should spend time studying the Word of God on their own, 
that you should spend time in prayer, that you should spend time in what Scripture calls rumination or meditation upon God's Word, that you should spend time in uh, tithing even, that you should contribute to the needs of the saints, that you should do all of these things as acts of worship, that you should confess your sins, that you should make these habitual in your life because it's for your edification that you do it. They should praise God. Isn't it interesting that all of these individual personal disciplines apply to corporate worship as well? When we gather together at church and we sing songs of praise, we are not singing for one another's amusement or pleasure, but we are singing because it is our combined voices that glorify God. There is a theology to worship. We glorify Him. When we pray together, do you simply close your eyes and listen to the monotonous tones of Him who we've asked to pray? Or do you pray in unison with Him? When we corporately pray, do you pray with those who are praying? When we study God's Word, as God has instructed us to do, has been modeled in the Old Testament and the New Testament through the prophet Ezra and through Nehemiah's ministry and also through the New Testament with the preaching of Peter and also Paul. Do you open up your Bible? Read God's Word for yourself. Look at the context. Consider what God is speaking to you through His Spirit as you study His Word. Do you confess sin corporately? Let's pray and turn to God's word. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for your word. It is sufficient in all things. Lord, help us as we worship you, that you would be glorified in our obedience to, obedience to you and that you would humble us, God, that as we see your word speak, that we would have soft hearts towards it. May you be glorified. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We'll be focusing on the breastplate of righteousness, but I want to read the full passage beginning in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 this morning. And I'll read on to the end of verse 14. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. 
Last week we looked at the belt of truth and we explored the fact that the belt girded up all of these pieces of spiritual armor that Paul is exhorting his readers to take up and to put on. And that we explored that this truth is fundamental to the way that we approach God. Because truth is absolute and it's been revealed to us in such a way that we can explore it from this absolute perspective. And we looked, even hinted at the fact that this truth upholds now what we'll put our attention on this morning, the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate wouldn't be able to support itself had it not been for the belt that also girded it up. We look at this relationship between truth and righteousness and we find that God's word does not change. What God says is righteous, remains righteous. What he says is an abomination remains an abomination. Truth does not change. Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Truth defines righteousness. That's what it means to say that it upholds it and it girds it and it keeps it up. 1 John 5.20, the Bible says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Let's be clear, as we look at righteousness, as we look at this picture of taking up the whole armor of God, the Bible does not say, go out and smelt you some iron together that you could put together your own breastplate of righteousness. It says, put on what is already there. Christ's righteousness for you is found at the feet of the Christian who simply need to submit to the truth of the Bible and nothing else. Confessions and creeds are great for study. Confessions and creeds are great for understanding what is before us. But the Bible is sufficient. If we do not approach the Bible with an open and tender heart, we will find ourselves ruminating on the thoughts of man, the philosophies of man, trying to justify the things that we want, conforming the church to ourselves, in fact, even creating God in our image instead of realizing that we are created in His. The fundamental lie of Satan is to perverse God's Word. It's what he's done from the beginning. Genesis chapter 3 begins with a lie, and it has been his tactic ever since. Truth girds righteousness, which is in Christ. You will never make yourself righteous enough to stand before God. Even now in your salvation, I do not see anyone here this morning righteous enough to stand before God without being in Christ. The beautiful picture in Ephesians chapter 4 of adoption that we looked at so many months ago. So we are in Christ. The righteousness that justifies us is Christ's righteousness. Righteousness allows us to stand in a world that objects to God's truth. The world rejects this truth because it has been Satan's ploy since the beginning. Romans 3 verse 4 says, Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. If we do not know truth, we will not have a foundation on which to stand church. 
I say this to you with more zeal than I could possibly muster on my own. I promise you, if we do not know truth, we have no foundation on which to stand. When Jesus addressed Peter and he said, on this rock I build my church, it was on the truth of Peter's confession that he was the Christ. There's one truth. It's absolute. It's not changing. It defines righteousness for us. Colossians 2.8 gives us a warning as to what we will face as if, if we are a church who will not submit to truth. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. My goodness, loved ones, I look out here and I see so many smart people. Brilliant people, good thinkers, rational people, logical people. None of that will bring you closer to Christ. And that's good news if you're saying this morning, well, he's not talking to me. I'm not logical or rational or smart or any of those things. Good news for you. You have one less obstacle to overcome to come face to face with your Savior because He doesn't ask you to be smart enough. He doesn't ask you to be logical enough. He doesn't ask you to be rational or logical. He asks you to submit to His truth revealed in His Word. This is why we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Ephesians 5.21 Because truth is not changing. Because true righteousness guards our hearts. Hebrews 13.7 gives us this picture. I'll read through to verse 9. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. By the way, did I mention that truth isn't changing? Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. As we look this morning at taking up the breastplate of righteousness, we look at the command that begins this statement all the way back in verse 14. Stand. Righteousness doesn't give us any justification to go out into the world and to condemn it or to say, go this way or do this way or this is what God says and this is how I'm living my life. Righteousness is a protecting element to the Christian because we have a place to stand, not to be drifted away, not to be like a leaf sitting on top of a lake has, has no control over which direction it would go. Righteousness helps us stand. But do we stand for the right things? Is truth actually authoritative in our life or is it subjective? Are my priorities God's priorities or have I decided what's more important to me? Have I added to the scripture to define righteousness so that I might exegete a culture around me? Have I become so spineless and cowardice as a Christian that when the world says that Christianity is hateful and mean, that I cower behind God's word and instead of saying this is truth, I stand for nothing else, we run away. Loved ones, if you are only standing for truth, there is nothing to run away from. Clarify what you stand for. Hebrews 13, the passage I just read, gives us this picture that it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. 
Isn't it interesting that Paul's analogy places righteousness protecting the same internal organs? The breastplate guarding the heart. The heart is essential to living in righteousness. Neglecting to care for righteousness is ultimately apathy towards sin. The Bible tells us that the heart, when we understand it, especially in the Greek culture and the Hebrew culture, is the element of our body when it's made reference to, especially in this type of of, um, analogous way. The heart is the driving force of the body of the will, of the mind. It is a passion. It is what drives us and controls us. God uses the heart in this analogy to describe that it is the weakest part of us. If only we could sacrifice or not define what righteousness is, the heart would have the ability to perversify everything else in our life, our thought, our actions, and even the way that we interact in our relationships. Speaking to the church in Laodicea, Jesus writes through John's revelation in Revelation 3.16, So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. He warns us against apathy towards righteousness. What do I mean by that? By not caring. By saying that sin is not as bad as it actually is. By saying that sin, well, I'm saved by grace anyway. You know what it means if you think that way? It means you haven't really thought about what sin is. It means you haven't actually drawn close to God. Consider what sin cost Him. Consider how great His love is in view of sin, that you are no closer today from God's love than you were yesterday or the day before that because He is 100% pursuing you, drawing near to you, trying to bring you to Him, working His ways that you would be saved through grace alone, that He would place faith inside of your heart that you could believe in Him. All of these things, God is pursuing you. And despite your sin, to save you from your sin. But we're apathetic. I don't think it's that big of a deal. The prophet Zephaniah spoke on this. Writing at a time would come that God would search Jerusalem with lamps and he will punish the men who are complacent. That's another word for apathy, complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid to waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. Our lives are our spiritual worship to God. Paul writes in Romans chapter 12 of this very principle, urging the, those in Rome, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul goes on from this in verse 11 of the same chapter to admonish complacency and apathy. 
saying, do not be slothful. In zeal, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Very simple question this morning, church. Does your congregation, does my congregation, does it reflect fervor and zeal? Or does it reflect complacency and apathy? John Stott wrote, Apathy is the key form of sin in today's world. For Adam and Eve, apathy meant letting a snake tell them what to do. It meant abdicating the exercise of dominion and control over the world. I mentioned Jesus' letter to the church in Laodicea. He begins in Revelations 3.2. Revelation 3.2. It almost sounded like I made that plural. By the way, it's not. Wake up. Wake up. And strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your works complete in the sight of my God. Do we view sin as something we don't have to think about as a church because we're saved by grace and it doesn't belong to us? Or do we view sin as something that denies righteousness in Christ, that thwarts the power of the Spirit in the church, the power of Christ in the church, the power and the place of the church in the world? Are we apathetic towards sin in the lives of our brothers, even looking to the point that we might cause sin in their life and say, I need do nothing to change it? If you can do that to someone else, I'd hate to imagine what's actually going on in your life. You apathetic, complacent, spineless Christian. Come to Christ. He saved you. And you're still trying to save yourself. If you have sin in your life, come to someone who loves you. This is God's plan. We'll keep going and I pray that you will see that by His righteousness it say He saves you and by His righteousness He holds you and preserves you and His plan is the church. That's why in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10 He calls it the manifold wisdom of God because it is the brilliance to bring people into righteousness, to serve in their community, to love the world around them. It is the church, but the church means nothing if we don't reflect the church of the Bible. The heart is the essential component of living righteousness. Our heart reflects everything that we do. If our heart is weak, not strengthened, we will view sin as trivial. Our mind will not change about what sin deserves. Imagine that. Why do you think Paul led off in writing to the church in Ephesus by reminding them that they were once children of wrath? To remind them That the fires of Hades, the isolation, the separation from God, the soul-destroying, crushing separation between the Almighty Creator and hell, it's not just a strict and scary kind of thing that preachers say to scare people to come down to the altar, but it's what you deserve. It's what you deserve. It's what I deserve. Every bit of it. 
sulfur burning around me. A fire that burns but does not destroy. But sin's not that bad. That little thought I can't get out of my head, that resentment and that anger, that lack of forgiveness, that apathy towards sin, oh, it's not that big of a deal. How can you say that when it deserves hell? Our actions will be motivated when we try to hide and cover up our sin. Our relationships will suffer because we'll no longer be transparent between each other. Marriages will suffer. Children and their parents will have disunity amongst them. Work will be pointless. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. Care about sinfulness. Call it what it is. Be fervent in addressing it. Have a right mind about what sin is. This isn't out of context, loved ones. Paul gives us a right mind. The Bible gives us a right mind about the things that we can stand on. Even within the same letter, Ephesians 4, verse 25, addresses these things that we are to put off. Paul writes, the Bible says, God says, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for the building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. But consider what apathy looks like. Paul gives us that picture too. Verse 17. The Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Are you ignorant? They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, to practice every kind of impurity. Is Paul's rhetorical question meant for us just to skip by in verse 20 when he says, these things that you have learned from Christ, if you have learned them from Christ? If there is not love enough for a brother to weep with them as they struggle in sin, as they genuinely repent, as you look at it, not with apathy, but you look at it as something that needs God and needs fellowship and needs restoration. John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. What does it mean when the church is failing to address sin amongst her members? 
Does it mean that we've hung up the breastplate of righteousness in our closets, never to adorn ourselves with the royal armor of the priesthood that we have been called to? Does it mean, in fact, that the assumption in Ephesians 4.21 is a mistake? That we have not heard of Jesus, that we have not been taught in him, that we do not know the truth which is in him. Are we the church or a country club? What does it mean that the church has been confronted with the reality of extra biblical covenants inside of our church covenant, causing one of our brothers to live in sin, but we have no urgency or care either to Discipline them or make our covenant mean something. Instead of standing, we drift. Are we as lost as the world around us? Has Satan already won the war that we are called to fight? Have we taken hold of the truth that is the victory that is already given to us and telling us to put on armor already laid before us? Who are we in Christ? You've picked up the victory of righteousness through justification, but I ask, have you picked up the victory of Christ in sanctification? This word put on is an active commandment. He tells us to stand firm, but look at the text, put, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. This brings up an interesting question. There's nothing that you can do to save yourself. The Bible makes that very clear. He tells you to stand in the truth that is already established but you're supposed to put on righteousness. How do these things marry together? The first is by understanding justification. That is, in the moment that the believer places their faith in Christ, and by the way, God starts that process, He gives you faith to trust Him. The moment that that believer puts their faith in Christ, they are justified, a legal term, which means that they are made just as if they had never sinned. It mirrors the perfect picture in the Old Testament through the Levitical law of Israel placing the blood atoning sacrifice on the scapegoat and sending them onto the wilderness, that that scapegoat would carry the sins of an entire nation. So too, Christ dying on the cross becomes the scapegoat for Christians. For those that would put their faith in Him. He bears the burden of our sin perfectly and wholly. Isaiah 53 verse 4 perfectly draws this picture in. You need to go no further than the Old Testament to see this. That the Messiah has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And just before that, that He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. But we're apathetic towards sin. Before we can discuss how to put on righteousness, we must understand that without Christ... We have no righteousness. Do you hear me, church? Everyone should have said amen to that. Without Christ, we have no righteousness. 
If you've forgotten that, go back to Ephesians chapter 1. Without Christ, the church has no righteousness. Our righteousness comes from Him. It's His righteousness on me that allows me to stand justified before my Creator. Paul explains this principle of Christ's righteousness being on me, something really nerdy theologians would call imputation. But guess what? I'm not the only nerd in the room today. Brother James... The accountant knows all about imputation. It's an accounting term. It means to take from one account to put on another. Christ's righteousness, his account, was put, imputed onto mine. All this doctrine of imputation is incredible because if you follow it through the biblical narrative, we understand from the very beginning imputation has been happening since Adam's sin was imputed to his following generations. Isn't that wonderful? Doesn't that make you excited? Did you know that Charlotte and Charlie playing? They're little sinners. And it's my fault. I imputed my sinfulness into them. Do you know why they go off into this world and why they do awful things? I... My, my mom, God bless my mom. God, please save my mom. She looks at them and she says, they're so innocent. And I said, no, they're not. They're depraved. Everyone in creation is depraved. Awful, wretched, despicable, disgusting. And if you don't believe me, come and babysit for one hour. As precious and obedient as my children are, as good of a job as Michelle has done keeping our household in order because I haven't done it. God bless you, Michelle. Those little children still throw tantrums. Is it because they're innocent? No, it's because they're selfish. Amputation's not so exciting when we talk about how we became sinners. It's important to realize, though, that everyone in this world, if you really had any questions about salvation having anything to do with works, realize this. You're a sinner because you were born a sinner. Even if you are delusional enough to think that you haven't done enough bad to deserve hell, you inherited all the sinfulness you ever needed to be condemned. You stand before God totally depraved, wretched in disobedience, rebelling against Him. Thank God for what Luther would call the glorious exchange. That that same sinfulness that condemns you was imputed to Christ. That He bore your sins, was pierced for your transgressions, crushed underneath them. That He bore them on Calvary and that His righteousness would be imputed to your account. You need nothing else. To stand before your Creator as He looks at Christ's righteousness in you. To be in heaven. To enjoy His embrace. Have fellowship with Him. To have communion and fellowship with the brothers. To be identified with the church. This adoption being in Christ is the picture of salvation. How then do you put on righteousness as Paul tells us to do in Ephesians 6? Well, it doesn't end there. 
If righteousness was imputed to you through justification, it is imparted to you through sanctification. How do you do that? Do you just muster up enough energy? You work up enough strength, decide, well, hey, I'm going to quit watching pornography and I'm going to quit beating my wife and I'm going to quit um, hating my neighbor and thinking everything else. Is that what you do? No. Any effort to put on righteousness with the same zeal as putting on works to save you will be just as futile. You put on the righteousness that God has already laid before you. And you don't do it on your own. That's the lie of the enemy. You do it in fellowship with believers. You do it with the church. You do it by identifying with the body, by having people that you can confide in so that you can run into the church on Sunday and you can be weak and weary and pierced, having arrows in your back from a world that says that you're hateful and you can say, I need help. this on my own. Christ justified you with his righteousness. He's imparting that righteousness to you and his manifold wisdom is displayed before the heavenly places, before the spiritual powers and the establishment of the church. It's no surprise to me that the church has become apathetic towards sin by adopting the lies and the schemes of the devil because if we would embrace these lies and we keep these things secret, if we refuse to confess our sins, if we don't come forward, if we think sin's not as bad as it is, well, then we'll all be weak. We'll be walking around like stick figures who are strong in our faith, fervent in our zeal, reading our Bible, although I can't talk about it, although it doesn't come up naturally in conversation. You know why it doesn't come up naturally in conversation? Because you're lying. You haven't studied your Bible. You know why your prayers are superficial and shallow? Because you haven't been communing with God. You know why you refuse to submit to the authority of Scripture in all things? Because you don't actually believe it's authoritative. Justification is by faith alone. So too is sanctification. How do we understand that we are not to be apathetic towards sin? Do we say that unless someone is perfectly righteous, that they haven't actually been imputed the righteousness of Christ? Justification is our immediate right standing with God. Sanctification is the process by which we are progressively made more holy. And what a beautiful picture it is. Church, grow up, get sanctified by faith alone. Righteousness is imputed to us in justification, but imparted to us in sanctification. Justification is our title in heaven while sanctification is our preparation for actually living there. Understand that sanctification is what is meant by Paul when he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. By living in the Spirit. So then, brothers, we are not debtors, not 
to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Romans chapter 8, verse 12 through 13. By walking in the Spirit, the result is that we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul writes to the churches of Galatia. There is no way of deliverance from the state and condition of being in the flesh, but by the Spirit of Christ. Church, we need to be clear on this. I think this is where the lie started. This is where we started falling for, falling for Satan's traps. This is where we began being deceived. You were saved by faith alone. You'll be made holy by faith alone. Quit trying to gird up your own righteousness. Paul writes, having put on the breastplate, I'm sorry, having girded up the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, embrace God's truth that you might be able to gird on the glorious adorning armor of God. That when you go into this world, you will not be lulled away, side from side, drifted by worldly philosophies and deceitful thought, but that you will be completely and wholly submissive to a God who wants what is best for you, surrendering to Him that you would be righteous by guarding your heart. This is a heart issue. Let me give you a lengthy quotation by John Owen. He's kind of the authority on this. You want the, let me give you the nerdy theological word. Mortification of sin, putting sin to death, putting the old self to death. Oh, it's amazing. Because we're justified by Christ's work. But Jesus hasn't stopped. The work of the cross is still working even beyond salvation. When a man fighteth against his sin only with arguments from the issue of punishment due unto, unto it, this is a sign that sin hath taken great possession of the will, and that in the heart there is superfluity, fluidity in naughtiness. Such a man as opposes nothing to the seduction of sin and lust in his heart, but fear the shame among men or hell from God, is sufficiently resolved to do the sin if there were no punishment attending it. Did you guys catch that? If the only reason you object to sinfulness is because you would be embarrassed in front of the church, you might as well go off and do it. It's no different. There's no heart change. If the only reason you object to sin is because of the moral decay that it would cause in the world, because of the advancement of perversity in the world that we live in, you're no different. You're a moralist at best. You're not a Christian. You're not following Christ. Owen goes on. There was no punishment attending it, which what it differs from living in the practice of sin, I know not. 
Those who are Christ and are acted in their obedience upon the gospel principles have the death of Christ, the love of God, the detestable nature of sin, the preciousness of communion with God, a deep grounded adhoracy of sin as sin, to oppose any seduction of sin to all the workings, strivings, fightings of lust in their heart. If the only reason you don't sin is because you fear punishment, there is no heart change. There is no righteousness in you. If you belong to Christ, you have His death, His victory over sin. You have communion with God, the encouragement of His relationship, a real view of sin. You see it for what it is. You recognize it for what it is. You grieve over it as you should. Have you really put sin to death in your life? Have you died to your sin? Or are you living for the world? What does it mean when the church avoids church discipline with her members? How long is our membership role? Do none of you love your church members enough to go to their door and say, why won't you come worship with me? Do you hate your brother like Cain that you won't go to someone and say, you belong in church with an attitude that wants to restore them? How long is our membership role? Will you not love your brother enough to go to, say, go to them and to say, did you know that by living with your boyfriend without being, more, being married, you are disgracing God and living in disobedience to His Word? Do you not see how bad this is for your life? Do you not love your friends enough to say, hey, I, I know that you've really been struggling with impure thoughts. What kind of accountability have you built in your life to have someone make sure that you're not giving heed to these thoughts? And my goodness, church. What does it mean when your pastor comes to you and says, we are creating sin in the life of somebody who we say we love, and you say to him, we want to do nothing about it. Do we view sin as simply an inconvenience? Is it something that we just need to ignore so that we can go on pretending that we're righteous? Or does the Bible tell us to put on righteousness? Just as a little bit of commentary, some of you may have noticed that I have some youthful fervor in me. 
majority of my friends don't come to church. I just got back from my high school reunion. I was the only minister there, and I believe I was the only person who goes to church regularly there. I wonder why is it that my generation and generations after me do not view church as important. You're all looking around this morning. Where's all the young people? Where's the generation that's going to be the church after us? You know why they aren't here? The past 20 years, the church has adopted this model of being seeker-sensitive. The past 20 years or so, the church has put their focus on attracting people who are not the church and catering to the world even in their worship services. So much so that rather than preaching against sin and preaching for righteousness, we just want to tell you how you can live your best life now. How you can be purpose-driven. The church isn't here for the world. It's here for the saints. It's for those that would put on the whole armor of God and they'd go out into the world, that they would see themselves as a part of something bigger. The Bible doesn't tell you to ignore sin and look treated as an inconvenience. It tells you to pick it up and to actually be righteous. When we look at the command to put on righteousness of Christ and we understand this in the view of the doctrines of imputation, mortification, justification, and sanctification. Man, I gave you guys a lot of words this morning. Somebody say, praise God. He doesn't care about how much I know. He cares about how much I know Him. Our lives, our spiritual worship, our call to commune and fellowship together is hinged on this issue. It is hinged to this issue that we believe in God. With our zeal for righteousness, we pursue Him. Have we become distracted by who our enemy is that we no longer look at the church as a place of spiritual warfare? Do we guard our membership with enough zeal to actually protect one another, to encourage one another to live righteously? Because you won't do it on your own. You won't pursue God on your own. That's why it tells you to be a part of a church. God has already condemned the world. He has promised to judge the world. The world is going to hell. There's no doubt. Anyone who is outside of Christ will be cast into this lake of fire, burning with sulfur, isolated and alone. And some of what the world is experiencing is already God's judgment and condemnation against them. And I say that with no hesitance, with no fear, with no trepidation. What I'm afraid of is the church looking like the world when we're supposed to look like Christ. We look at depression, anxiety, a rise in suicide, especially among youth, pointless nihilism becoming a serious way of thinking. What nonsense! There is no righteousness in the world because the world is not of Christ. The world will be judged, but the church. Oh, you saints, you who are in Christ are supposed to be a light to this world through your righteousness. But have you taken the time to put righteousness on? 
Consider it when the church has division among us, when it's not that we are still clinging to our old selves. What causes anger among us? Is it not that we have failed to pick up our new self? What causes us to have a low view of the ordinances given to the church? Is it not that we read into Scripture what we want to be there? The Bible constantly contradicts human reasoning and submission to it is the only way to appeal to God. We say with our actions, church, that we value our own self and our own tradition over the Word of God. Pragmatism in this way is a seriously devastating way that Satan is attempting to undermine God's church, His law. He created us in His image. He is not created in ours. You stand for nothing because your righteousness is hollow in your actions. Your faith is dead because you do not practice what you believe. The youth aren't here because they see hypocrisy and they're right. Raise your standards. Gods are pretty high. I'm holy, therefore be holy. Get serious about your faith. Because spiritual warfare is no joke. Jesus teaching on how important our relationships are says if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Church, you have caused sin in the life of one of your brothers. We must corporately confess. It's not something we can do on our own, but it is something we must do as the church. We only have two options. Mean what we say, By either disciplining a brother, which will result in him leaving a position and also require this church to step up and provide for him and his family, or mean what we say and write a covenant that matters to you. Father in heaven, thank you for your word, for your righteousness that is in me. For your righteousness that is in us. God, I pray that you would protect the testimony of our church. That you would bring us and draw us closer to you. God, that you would lead us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing? Sing number 453.